everyone, and welcome to the January 2024 episode of Astrochem Coffee, a service of astrochemistry discussions. I'm your host, Brett McGuire. This month's grab-and-go includes not one, but two new interstellar detections. We talked to Cole Wampfler of NRAO and Stephanie Milam of NASA Goddard, and in the percolator, we have a different kind of brew this month, interstellar ethanol. But first, let me tell you that today's Cup of Joe is a Smoky Mountain Roast from Shenandoah Joe's Coffee in Charlottesville, Virginia. This is a nice roast with dark, nutty flavors and a real hit of smoke, making it an enjoyable morning cup. Unfortunately, Joe insists on always preparing it as a pour-over rather than just pouring it on demand from a gigantic pre-brewed vat that has had several hours to work on developing flavors. But hey, we can't all be perfect. In today's coffee chat, we catch up with Cole Wampler, a data analyst at the National Radio Astronomy Observatory in Charlottesville, Virginia. Now, I spoke with Cole at the 10 Years of Alma conference in Port of Aris last December, where he was presenting a poster on the first detection of HC5N in a protoplanetary disk. So you are a data analyst at NRAO. That is correct. Right. Okay. So tell us a little bit about what you what you do in your your day to day functional work job at NRAO. NRAO. So we talk about your poster here. Data analysts wear a lot of hats at NRAO, but primarily our job is uh, quality assurance of the data. So there's people down at the telescope that'll uh, do the first stage, which is to make sure like complete and utter disaster did not strike with your observation. <laughs> All right. But then it gets shipped off to whatever arc you are working with, whether that be like North America, Europe, or Japan. Yeah. Uh, and we go in and do like a more fine combing of uh, making sure that it met your initial requirements. And we make an image to prove that it does, and you can use that or not. It's up to you. Um, we also support users uh, on the help desk, which is a wide variety of issues, you know, like uh, observation, data reduction, uh, CASA questions, and other things that randomly pop up, you know. Uh, and we also support users uh, when they visit NRAO, whether that be virtually or in person. Yeah. That's just an extension of the help desk, I suppose. Uh, and then we do other small things that are not as regular, but uh, those are the two main things I'd probably do like every day. Sure, nice. So you also get some time to do uh, personal advancement, professional advancement, which you're using to do science here, right? Yes. We'll talk about your actual astrochemistry science here in a second. But how did you get into astrochemistry to begin with? Why did you? What made you think it was interesting? How did you get into the project in general? So. Um, when I started at NRAO, I was like uh, coming out of the desert of COVID. It had been huh? like a year since I'd done astronomy. Uh -huh. uh, I guess my REU would be the last time I'd done that. And that was in 2019. Okay. So I what, started, what did you do for your REU? Uh, I worked at Oak Ridge National Laboratory, and I did some modeling of uh, some supernova simulations for a group. Oh, okay. It was okay. a very short summer project, but I was basically scouting if it was worth it for them to do some simulations on uh, something called Wolf-Rayet stars, which are like very large, uh -huh. hypothetically large stars. Uh -huh. uh, we don't have like the resolution to tell if they're actually real or if they're stars. We just like multiple stars we can't resolve. Oh, no but they're kidding. like okay. 150 to 250 solar mass stars. Like, and what, okay. do you, what even happens when those explode? Sure. So that was what I looked at. Uh, so from there, I uh, got to NRAO, and I wanted to do some science, but I didn't really know like 
the functionality of InterAO. I, I, I did not know InterAO existed before I applied for the job there. Gotcha. And radio astronomy, obviously, I knew existed, but not in the capacity that I do now. Uh-huh. Um, so I talked around and like kind of shopped around at what people were interested in and what people had available to work on, and mm-hmm. I found uh, Dr. Ryan Loomis. Yes, yes. And he had some data that he had been kind of putting off and, and couldn't uh, have time for that he kind of assigned me, and then we began this slow, arduous process of me uh, catching up to being at least functional uh-huh. in uh, radio astronomy, which is not easy. Uh-huh. Uh, sometimes I tell people, like, radio astronomy and optical astronomy are kind of like uh, classical mechanics and quantum mechanics. There are some <laughs> things that are, an- are analogous and transfer over, and there are uh-huh. some things like that just there is no, you just have to learn. It's just the math, and there's sure. no analogy. Like, the, it's completely alien, and yeah. that took some time. And I'm not sure I fully understand it still, but <laughs> more than yesterday. Right? Perfect, perfect. So, okay, so you have a, a poster here, first detection of HC5N within a protoplanetary disk. So what was the what was the motivation here? To walk walk me through the project, all that sort of stuff. Okay, so the original project was a band three observation of TW Hydra, okay. which is the closest uh, protoplanetary disk to Earth. Okay, it's a very ideal candidate. It's also face on, which makes it very oh, nice. uh, easy to work yeah, with. Yeah, okay, right. Um, the initial goal was another observation. Uh, I guess same observation. Another um, poster slash paper where. We were looking at HC3N, which is another cyanopolyene, uh, to study the fractionization of uh, C12 and C13. Okay. Okay. So we looked at isotopologues of HC3N with carbon 13 in each of the you know each of the places in the chain, mm-hmm. and then this was a bonus molecule that just happened to be there, and so that was in the original proposal. Nice. Uh, and they're not as strong as the HC3N lines, but sure. it, it clearly can be its own sort of detection, and it, it's right at the limits of ALMA's observing capabilities right now. Okay. So they're weak, and there's not a lot you could do, but it is very uh, promising for the future of what uh-huh. you can do with the WSU especially, and that's sure. kind of what this conference is about. So that's why it's awesome. an exciting it, result. I, I actually don't know off the top of my head. Is this the largest in terms of the number of atoms molecule detected in a protoplanetary disk today? For a class 2 disk, I believe it is the largest molecule ever detected. Awesome. Well, congratulations, uh, then. Now that you've detected it, uh, what's it going to tell you? So, there. while this is exciting, um, and it is another, like, stamp on the table of uh, class 2 disks, yes. there are some not-so-ideal um, uh, problems with, with, like, we don't have enough data to attain some of the results that you would like. Okay. For instance, we only have two points on this uh, distribution of the, the jade transitions, uh-huh. and they're both on the right-hand side of the peak in intensity. Uh, okay. And it, perhaps if you had data points on the left-hand side as well, which Band 1 will be capable of doing okay. uh, with ALMA starting, like, next year, yeah. um, then you could maybe fit a rotation diagram better and constrain some column density, stuff like that. Like, sure. It's just ever so close to being, and it still wouldn't be, uh, uh, there would still be like error and sure. uncertainty, but it's so, uh, with just this data, it's so unattainable that it's not uh, going to happen. Sure. Um, so the, the really, I think the takeaway message is that it is there, yes. and I'm assuming that other things are there as well, they're just so buried in the continuum that it's not quite uh, possible to eat them out yet, but uh, with the larger molecules, they're, they function as like really good tracers of okay. lots of processes that I'm not fully aware of. But, sure. but uh, 
yeah, it's exciting because the WSU will make this so much easier to do. But you know, in the meantime, that's not for a while. In the meantime, if, if the right proposal comes along and can attain this data, you could probably do a rough job of it now. Nice. All right. Well, I'll let you get back to it. Thanks for chatting with us. Right. Thanks. Cole and his co-author on the poster, Ryan Loomis, also of the National Radio Astronomy Observatory, have made their poster available on a Zenodo repository for the conference. And so we'll have a link to that in the show notes if you want to check it out in detail. And now, a word from our sponsors. Folks, you may not have seen the recent stunning images of dozens of active volcanoes on Jupiter's moon Io from the Juno mission flyby that have been circulating on the bird site, but Stardux has, and they're ready to celebrate. Stardux is over the moon to introduce their latest cosmic creation, Jupiter Java Lavas, a dessert so out of this world it's literally inspired by the fiery spectacle captured by the Juno mission. Imagine, if you will, bites of decadent brownie with an eruption of molten chocolate lava to rival even Io. Each bite is a journey to the stars, with a taste so explosive it'll make you see constellations. And because Stardux believes in the power of the cosmos, they've gone light years ahead to ensure these aren't just any brownies. Baked with the darkest chocolate this side of the Milky Way and a secret ingredient from a galaxy far, far away. No, seriously, we'd tell you, but then we'd have to, you know, launch you into a black hole. But the adventure doesn't stop at taste. The Jupiter Java lavas are served on a plate that replicates the surface of Io, complete with edible space rocks. Yes, you can finally fulfill your childhood dream of eating a moon rock, and it tastes like chocolate. So strap in, space cadets, and prepare for liftoff to a flavor galaxy of epic proportions. The Java lavas are here, but like a shooting star, they won't be around for long. Make your taste buds space dreams come true at Starducks, where the coffee is strong and the brownies are out of this world. This is the grab and go, because sometimes you can't do more than just skim the menu. We've got 10 awesome astrochemistry-relevant publications for you from this month's literature. Up first, number one, chemical tracers of a highly eccentric AGB main sequence star binary by Danilovic et al. in Nature Astronomy. This paper uses astrochemical modeling to provide constraints on the orbital parameters of binaries that contain AGB stars. Their analysis focuses on ALMA observations of SIN, NS, SIC, and CO in the W. Aquilae system. They find asymmetric distributions of SIN in particular, suggesting a temporal dependence for its formation. They speculate that because SIN production is enhanced by UV flux in high-density gas in particular, that there are only very specific alignments of the binaries that illuminate dense enough regions of the AGB wind to drive the chemical production of SIN. From these assumptions, they then extract precise orbital parameters for the binary. Number two, high-resolution spectroscopic investigation of the CH2CHO radical in the submillimeter region by Chabazian et al. in JPCA. This work presents the pure rotational spectrum of the Vinoxy radical, 
between 110 and 860 gigahertz. The radical was produced from acetaldehyde by abstracting a hydrogen using reaction with atomic fluorine, which was in turn produced by discharging a mixture of diatomic fluorine diluted in helium. The spectroscopic fit and supporting analysis files are provided, and based on this work, the strongest transitions of this species at the modest temperatures typical of star-forming regions fall between 400 and 600 gigahertz, making it an excellent target for ALMA observations. Number three, laboratory investigation of shock-induced dissociation of Buckminster fullerene and astrophysical insights by Chakraborty et al. in A and A. Now, despite the fact that C60 is most commonly found in extremely energetic and, frankly, violent interstellar environments, relatively few studies have examined the effects of these conditions on C60 itself. This study examined the dissociation of C60 in a pressure-driven shock tube at temperatures as high as 4,500 Kelvin. The authors report that massive amounts of C2 units are produced from this process, as well as many larger carbon clusters. They suggest that only J-type shocks with velocities greater than 100 kilometers per second, or C-type shocks above 9 kilometers per second, could effectively destroy C60 in interstellar environments. Number four, study on formation of interstellar C7H from the reactions C4 plus C3H2 and C4H plus C3H by Sun et al. in JPCA. The authors investigate these two formation mechanisms using a combination of translational and photoionization spectroscopy as well as quantum chemical calculations. Those calculations indicated both processes should be barrierless and that C7H should be the favored product of both reactions. The reactants were made using a cross-molecular beam discharge source, and of the two routes studied, about 80% of the C7H formation was attributed to the reaction of C4H plus C3H. They suggest this should be considered in astrochemical models in addition to the standard pathway of C plus C6H2. Number five, organic chemistry in the H2-bearing CO-rich interstellar ice layer at temperatures relevant to dense cloud interiors by Martin Dominich et al. on the archive. This is an experimental study looking at the production of complex organic molecules from ice mixtures of CO, N2, and molecular hydrogen when that ice is irradiated with two kiloelectron volt electrons between 4 and 15 Kelvin. They identify a number of organic species, including formaldehyde, that's H2CO, ketene, that's C2H4O, and isocyanic acid, HCNO. They conclude that if there is indeed some amount of molecular hydrogen trapped in interstellar CO ices, this could be enhancing the formation of hydrogenated organic species in the coldest of interstellar environments. Number six, spectroscopic sizing of interstellar icy grains with JWST by D'Artois et al. in Nature Astronomy. While it is clear that interstellar icy grains must grow over the process of star and planet formation, where, when, and how this growth occurs is not well understood. This study exploits the resolution and sensitivity of JWST observations of ice band profiles in dense regions of the Chameleon 1 cloud to show that icy grain growth starts very early in this process. Detailed comparisons of the observed spectral signatures to new chemical models that incorporate the effective grain size distribution on the observed band profiles show that these grains have already grown to micrometer sizes in these cold, dense regions. 
Number seven, the effective temperature on the gas phase reaction of CH3CN with OH radicals. Experimental from temperatures of 11.7 to 177.5 Kelvin and computational for temperatures between 10 and 400 Kelvin kinetic study by Gonzalez et al. appearing in PCCP. Acetonitrile, also known as methyl cyanide, is one of the most common interstellar molecules, yet its gas phase reactions with radical species, which are also common in the ISM, are not well studied in the lab due to experimental challenges in producing those radicals. This study uses the CRESU technique, CRESU being the French acronym for reaction kinetics in a uniform supersonic flow, combined with pulse laser photolysis laser-induced fluorescence to study the reaction of methyl cyanide with OH. The reaction rate constant shows orders of magnitude increases in value from 177 down to 107 Kelvin, and then much smaller increases from 107 Kelvin down to 12 Kelvin. Despite this, the incorporation of these new rates and indeed this reaction into chemical models show that it has a negligible impact on the abundance of either the methyl cyanide or the product species. Number eight, protonated acetylene in the Z equals 0.89 molecular absorber toward PKS 1830-211 by Muller et al. on the archive to appear in ANA. This paper presents the first interstellar detection of protonated acetylene, that's C2H3+. The authors identify this molecule through absorption features corresponding to the ground state rotational transitions of the ortho and para forms of this species in ALMA observations toward the PKS 1830-211 gravitationally lensed quasar. The absorption arises from intervening extragalactic molecular gas at a redshift of Z equals 0.89. They explore some formation routes through acetylene and methane and conclude that the formation through methane is most likely in PDR-like environments. And I'll note here, I think, although I could be wrong, that this is the first new detection of a new interstellar molecule that has occurred using observations of an extragalactic source. Uh, if it's not the first one, it's one of very few. Number nine, theoretical modeling of the absorption of neutral and charged sulfur-bearing species onto olivine nanoclusters by Pereiro et al. on the archive to appear in Munras. Sulfur depletion in the ISM remains a puzzling problem because the abundance of sulfur accounted for in molecular clouds is only about 1% of its total cosmic abundance. The depletion of sulfur species under grains in these environments is a popular theory to account for this, but only a few such species have been identified in these ices, and certainly not in sufficient abundance. This work aims to understand whether processes at stages even earlier in the evolution of the source, when the mineral core of the grain itself is exposed, could contribute to the depletion. They find that indeed the adsorption of sulfur onto bare grains is possible and could impact the sulfur depletion before ice surfaces begin to form. And finally, number 10, discovery of thiofulminic acid with the Quixote Line Survey, a study of the isomers of HNCS and HNCO in TMC1 by Chernicharo et al. on the archive to appear in A&A. This work presents the first detection of HCNS, thiofulminic acid, in space using the Yeba's 40-meter observations of TMC1. The authors examine the ratios of this species and its structural isomers, HNCS and HSCN, to their oxygen counterparts. Those would be HCNO, HNCO, and HOCN. Just swap the sulfur out for oxygen wherever it is. 
they find these ratios are quite disparate and are also not well produced by the chemical models, indicating that either key reaction pathways are missing or that the precursor species themselves are not well described by the models. And that's your grab and go for the month. We can of course only juggle so many cups. For a more complete list of papers, we recommend checking out the amazing lists maintained by David Woon at theastrochemist.org and the Astrochemical Newsletter. You can find links to these websites as well as each of the papers in this month's grab and go on our website at coffee.astrochem.net. Do you have a paper you think should be included in next month's edition? Shoot us an email with a link to the paper and a four to six sentence summary at coffee at astrochem.net. And now, a word from our sponsors. Hey there, dear listeners. Have you ever found yourself in the middle of a welding project, sparks flying, metal fusing, and thought, wow, I wish I could see these beautiful sparks without risking my beautiful eyeballs? Well, Flame Flicker has the solution for you. Introducing the Flame Flicker Vision Pro Deluxe Welding Face Shield. This is the only mask that not only protects your precious peepers, but also turns your welding experience into a 4K IMAX theater extravaganza. It's Flame Flicker's best spatial welding mask yet, and we think you're going to love it. With Flame Flicker's patented Sparkle Vision technology, you can now enjoy the light show of your welding artistry in stunning high definition. Our full suite of 4K cameras capture the light show and beam it onto the interior of the Flame Flicker's screens, while simultaneously blocking 100% of the harmful light. It's like watching fireworks, but you're the one creating the sparks, and you won't have to call your optometrist the next day. And the best part? Now you can augment your experience with floating TikTok feeds that hover in your vision right next to your project. But wait, there's more. Do you ever find yourself welding in a tight spot wishing you had more flexibility? Well, fear not. The Flame Flicker Vision Pro comes with a 360-degree rotating visor. That's right, now you can look directly behind you without turning your head, perfect for those who suspect their buddies might be trying to prank them while they're in the zone. And get this, in celebration of the recent detection of protonated acetylene in space, that's welding torch fuel, you know. For a limited time, if you order your Flame Flicker with the promo code COFFEE, you'll receive not one, but two extra sets of our exclusive, ultra-durable, I-can't-believe-it's-not-bulletproof, heat-resistant gloves. Because the only thing we want to break is the barrier between you and your ultimate welding experience, not your hands. So whether you're a seasoned welder or just starting out and want to look cooler than a cucumber in sunglasses, the Flame Flicker Vision Pro is your ticket to a safer, more stylish, and spark-filled welding journey. Pre-orders start next Friday for the 128 and 256GB models, and next month for the 10TB Max model. Alrighty folks, let's get back to our show, but remember, with Flame Flicker, it's not just welding, it's a full spatial experience. For this month's single origin brew, I had the chance to spend some time chatting with Stephanie Milam, astrochemist and JWST deputy project scientist for planetary science. This interview was recorded also at the 10 years of Alma meeting in Porto Varas in December of 2023. All right. Well, thanks for joining me, Stephanie. Thanks for having me. All right. So you are, and correct me when I get this wrong, you are the deputy project scientist for the JWST at NASA. 
Yes. Is that correct? And JDFT does a whole bunch of things, not just astrochemistry. But you are an astrochemist. You got started in astrochemist. What got you interested in astrochemistry in the first place? I um, I always wanted to be an astronaut when I was a kid. Okay. And I learned about my senior year of high school that I wasn't tall enough to be an astronaut. Wait, there's a height requirement? Well, for the space shuttle there was. Okay, okay. So um, that meant I, the only way to become an astronaut was to be a mission specialist, okay. which meant I had to be a professional scientist. Okay. I was really good at chemistry, so I thought that was the, the pursuit that I should follow. Okay. And... Also, if the whole NASA thing didn't work out, I could always get a job. Everybody needs a chemist, right? And uh, I worked in an environmental laboratory during my undergraduate while I was getting my bachelor's in chemistry. Okay. Learned very early on that I uh, didn't want to wash glassware for a living. I understand. <laughs> Absolutely. So my advisor was like, well, you're very good at quantum mechanics and spectroscopy. Have you heard of this thing called astrochemistry? Awesome. And that sort of started the whole thing. Okay. Um, I looked up astrochemistry programs for graduate school and um, thought I should apply and try and... Lo and behold, I got into a few and ended up at the University of Arizona to get a degree in astrochemistry uh, through the chemistry department. Perfect. Um, And so I am technically a chemist. Yes. Employed as a physical scientist in the planetary science division doing astrophysics. Okay. Awesome. That's great. Okay. So... I know in, in graduate school you started doing some actual observational work as well. And then remind me where you did your postdoc. Did you go to NASA for your postdoc? Yeah, I was at NASA Ames Research Center. Oh, that's right, and that's right. And I was learning how to go back into a laboratory. Uh-huh. Uh, observational work was leading to big questions that needed some laboratory work. Uh-huh. And everyone I asked to do it said, oh, well, you can come and do it yourself. And so I guess I had to learn how to do it. So <laughs> Perfect. Got back into a laboratory during my postdoc, and um, when I was hired at Goddard shortly thereafter, yeah. it was with the condition that I was going to go back into experimental work okay. and observational work. So awesome. Now, so NASA civil service right. positions. You, you are you have a civil service position, is yes. that right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. So those come with a whole bunch of different, as I understand it, allocations of what you can or expect to do with your time, right? Right. So you have NASA service duties, including being the JWST deputy project scientist. So I'm going to ask you to tell me what you do in a, in a second there. But you also still run an, your own observational astronomy program, right? Because you just gave a talk here on cometary astrochemistry. Right. And your own laboratory. And you supervise multiple postdocs. Right. How do you juggle all of this? What's your actual time allocation? How do you deal with the, the rolling on uncert- all these sorts of things? Um... I'm not going to talk about my time allocation, <laughs> um, but I will say it is a challenge. Every day comes with its own challenges. Um, not only are you dealing with the challenges of managing a large group and multiple components, but it's also all the other things with a regular job that you have to do, the paperwork, the, the business side of things, um, managing grants, managing postdocs. Um, Recruiting, um, transitioning folks from fellowships to soft money science positions, um, 
as well as maintaining your own scientific collaborations right. and um, attending conferences, selling your science, publishing, um, as well as writing proposals as we do. Uh-huh. Okay, so what do you do? As, what, what does it mean to be a deputy project scientist for the JWST? So the James Webb Space Telescope is a flagship mission for NASA, right? So this is an extremely large mission that um, has multiple project science roles. Some of your smaller projects will only have one or two project scientists just because the managerial aspects of that role can be done by one or two people. Okay. Uh, since the James Webb Space Telescope was so large... Um, you know, international, uh, multi-decade uh -huh. sort of component level, lots of new technology, lots of, lots of new science and development. Um, different roles were kind of allocated to different individuals to kind of hone in and really use their expertise to focus on various aspects. Mm -hmm. So, for example, we had a project scientist for our instruments. Okay. And so it was this person's role to make sure all of our science instruments were being delivered, tested, and commissioned in a way that met our level one requirements of the mm -hmm. mission. We had an observatory project scientist. Okay. This person was um, assigned to oversee sort of all of the observatory aspects. Huh? Uh, the build and design and delivery and commissioning of the optical telescope. Oh, oh boy. <laughs> Um, but also included things like our sun shield and the spacecraft and sure. all of the other components of having just a mission in space. Yep. Um, so my role was to deal with solar system science, okay. which they decided they wanted a, a, a specialty on the project science team to uh -huh. do because solar system science is different than other standard astrophysical observations. Mm -hmm. Things in the solar system move with respect to the stars, uh -huh. and um, not only do they move, but a lot of them are very big and bright. Sure, okay. Some of the biggest and brightest objects that we will be using telescopes to study. Right. So understanding what science is to be gained from a certain capability, mm -hmm. and if we should be implementing capabilities to encourage that science. Yeah. And then trying to think beyond what we know to the unknown sure. and understanding what we should be doing um, to just ensure the capability, if it should exist, could exist. Sure, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I mean, so, so you mentioned something that I think a lot of folks don't actually realize, and that's that we generally think brighter things are easier to look at, right? With your naked eye or with telescopes or binoculars, right? But there are things, in fact, a lot of things, right, that JWC just can't look at because right. they're too bright. Why, right. why is that? So um, we designed this telescope to look at the first stars and galaxies of the universe. So we're looking for, you know, the heat signal of a bee on the moon, right? Sure, so, okay, yeah. Yeah. Um, we are we are really challenging um, astrophysics capabilities, technological capabilities at these mm -hmm. wavelengths, and I want to point at the brightest thing in the infrared sky, which is Mars. Okay. And Mars is the brightest thing JWST will likely ever observe. Wow. Okay. And has observed, awesome. not to to clarify, has observed. <laughs> um, 
But even with Mars, we had challenges. We had to implement subarrays for our cameras and our detectors so that we didn't saturate and just completely annihilate our data um, in ways that weren't even usable. Sure. So understanding how to do that. Um, but even then, we still only had certain wavelengths that we could actually observe, very narrow band filters, because it's that. too bright. Um, so really just understanding what that is and why we would even want to observe Mars. Sure. A lot of people ask, you know, we have missions at Mars. We uh -huh. have rovers, we have orbiters, we have landers, we have, you know, all kinds of dedicated um, missions and instrumentations and suites of things that are right. there. Why would we want to use a telescope to even look at Mars? Uh -huh. The answer is the global perspective. Oh, so you get the whole picture at once. So these satellites, which can only look at a small Yeah, portion of so think of a satellite, okay. like, like an orbiter. Yeah. It's like being on an airplane. Yeah. You see kind of what's below you. Right. But you don't see the entire global picture, sure. environmental impact, the whole okay. weather. Yeah, so weather patterns, uh, Climate, right? Okay. Um, seasonal variations. Sure. And JWST, um, even though it's a million miles away from Earth, that's actually a pretty good distance compared to Mars. We're yeah, a quarter of the okay. way to Mars, right? Sure. It gives us a view of Mars that we don't get from Earth. We can actually see the night side terminator of Mars from JWST, which you cannot see from Earth. No kidding. Just because of the relative positioning since because, JWST is out in L2. Because it's a million miles away. Okay. Yeah. That's really neat. Okay. Yeah. So you said that, that they wanted somebody that was on uh, an expert in solar system science. So that must be you. So what, what is the thing that you're most excited about in, in your own research for solar system science? Right, now? It doesn't have to be JWST. We're at an ALMA conference. That's cool, too. Um... So what I'm most interested in with my own research is cometary science. Mm -hmm. um, comets are the, you know, the cookie crumbs of our solar system formation. Uh -huh. And they tell us a lot about how planets formed, especially how um, volatile material was distributed to planets. Mm -hmm. And knowing what their composition was, what are those ingredients that made up our solar system? Sure. And why are we unique? Because... If the same ingredients made up other planetary systems, uh, uh -huh. there's this probability that maybe there's another planetary system that's comparable um, and potentially has another planet that has a habitable world. And so understanding the delivery of volatile material across the solar system, especially to terrestrial bodies, is something that's of extreme interest, especially in astrobiology and astrochemistry. Sure. And comets are one of the most volatile things in our solar system sure. that has that preserved material that gives us the, the inkling of an idea of how something like water could have come to Earth. So by volatiles, you mean anything that's basically not rock? Yeah. Anything that's not a mineral? Yep. Uh, okay, yep. so all of the ice, all of the gas, all that sort of thing. Yeah. Okay. And even like things like salts or other, other materials that could sublimate or dissociate mm. into a gas phase. Awesome. Gaseous or liquid Fantastic. All right, so last question. Favorite cup of coffee? How do you like to take your coffee? Where, where, Cafe Con Leche seems to be the default <laughs> here, right? It's not for everybody. Uh, conference alternatives are limited. Yes. Um, so my favorite coffee is a latte. Um, Good choice. I have a, a local coffee place in Maryland that I go to called Rise Up Coffee. Okay. Um, so if you're ever in Maryland, you should go to Rise Up. <laughs> it's fantastic coffee. Um, you know, it's the kind that will make you run, you know, a couple of miles um, when you've already had a 
you know, a, a half K or, you know, uh-huh, uh-huh. half marathon underneath your belt. So um, it's great awesome. coffee. Oh, I lied I, when I said one last question. So if folks are interested in, in careers at NASI, there is a, a postdoc or a permanent career. If opportunities that I know of are there's a ton of REU programs. There's um, the finest program, the graduate research fellowships, right? And then the NASA postdoctoral program for all the NASA facilities. Am I missing any? Are there things folks should look at? Um, so first of all, NASA doesn't support REU programs. Ah, okay. We have our own internship program. It's the NASA internship program. Okay, okay. Um, those applications will be due sometime in the next, uh, well, in January, February-ish. Okay. Um, they are paid um, nice. internships, and it's mostly undergraduate, but some graduate internship opportunities, and even okay. some high school opportunities. Okay. And these are at NASA centers. At or NASA facilities. centers. Okay. Yeah. Cool. And it doesn't have to be science, huh? and it doesn't have to be engineering. We do things like um, translation of our outreach materials into different languages. No kidding. Um, you have opportunities to get into photography or graphics. I mean, our NASA graphics are the well, best, they right? They are the best, of course, yes. And um, so working with these teams or even working on specific missions or specific instruments or in research labs mm-hmm. themselves. Um, so our internship opportunities are a great way to kind of come in and see what a day in the life of working at NASA is. Okay. Which is very different than a university. Sure. Um, we also have our own postdoctoral fellowship program, mm-hmm. um, which is a way to bring in uh, foreign nationals, mm-hmm. but also um, citizens mm-hmm. uh, to come in and work on dedicated research or projects uh, for a number of years. Um, you already said the finest program. Mm-hmm. We have another graduate research program that's dedicated to minority-serving minority institutions. Oh, great. Okay. Um, and they have a lot of different opportunities that vary across research and engineering. Awesome. All right. Well, thanks so much for taking the time. Yeah, thanks for having me. Now, folks, if after that interview you're thinking to yourself, I have to find a way to work with Stephanie, which of course you are, then you're in luck. The top item on our chalkboard this month is an open postdoc position in Stephanie's lab at Goddard. So stick around to find out more. thought we had the percolator fixed, and well, it is producing something, but we seem to be only getting espresso martinis from it at the moment. I'm guessing that has something to do with the paper that it bubbled up earlier this week, Detection of Interstellar Transethyl Alcohol by Zuckerman et al., 1975, in the Astrophysical Journal. Ethyl alcohol is also known by its more common name, ethanol. See also booze, hooch, spirits, tipples, grog, firewater, aquavitae, sauce, moonshine, juice, and or swill. The authors begin by pointing out that ethyl alcohol has been of interest to mankind since the dawn of the earliest civilizations. The authors indeed provide some contemporary references to back up that claim, but research into ethanol use has only grown in the intervening decades. In fact, in a 2004 study by McGovern et al. in PNAS, Chemical analyses of ancient organics found in pottery jars from the Jiahu village in Neolithic China showed a mixed fermented beverage of rice, honey, and fruit was being produced as early as 7,000 BC. John Wilford, reporting in the December 7, 2004 issue of the New York Times, noted that Dr. Patrick E. McGovern, an archaeochemist at the University of Pennsylvania, said the samples were the first direct chemical evidence for early fermented beverages in China not long after rice was domesticated. 
Shards from the bottoms of the jars had a reddish coating, inviting deeper examination to identify fingerprint compounds, or biomarkers, from the liquid that the vessels once held. But the coating was too degraded to be a reliable clue. Dr. McGovern said in a telephone interview that the very pores of the vessel were more revealing than the surface samples. The pores absorbed and preserved chemical traces of the liquid, and these were analyzed at Penn's University Museum of Archaeology and Anthropology. According to Sarah Nelson, a professor of anthropology at the University of Denver, as reported in the December 7, 2004 issue of the Provo, Utah Daily Herald, the discovery of such early evidence of alcohol use is logical because people around the world found out how to make themselves drunk quite early. When asked what kind of kick that 9,000-year-old Jiahu drink had, Dr. McGovern said, We don't know. We will have to experiment and find out. So, naturally, they did. Not even a year later, Dr. McGovern had struck up a new collaboration with Dogfish Head Brewery. According to the June 19, 2005 issue of the Philadelphia Inquirer, Dogfish had already brewed the saffron and honeyed beer McGovern had discovered in the 2,700-year-old tomb of King Midas and turned that beer, Midas Touch, into a commercial success. This new brew that they were deeming Chateau Jiahu after the village in which it was discovered was providing new challenges, however, in terms of how to properly replicate the ancient fermentation of rice. The brewers could use a mold cake, traditionally used in Chinese rice wines, or they could chew and spit the rice into a bowl and let the saliva enzymes go to work, a rustic East Asian technique. Sam was definitely all about chewing the rice, admits Dogfish Head Distillery Manager Mike Gerhardt. He really wanted saliva to be one of the ingredients on the label, but you've got to pick and choose your battles. So mold cake it was. Part sake, part beer, part honeyed muscat wine, the final golden brew has a sweet nose and soft champagne fizz, but a surprisingly dry flavor that finishes with a whiff of smoke and funky fruit that clings to your throat. Chateau Jiahu does appear to still be available, at least in the U.S., in limited quantities if you want to give it a try. The quantities of ethanol available in space, however, are far from limited. According to Zuckerman et al., Preliminary estimates indicate that the alcohol content of this cloud, Sagittarius B2, if purged of all impurities and condensed, would yield approximately 10 to the 28th fifths at 200 proof. This exceeds the total amount of all of man's fermentation efforts since the beginning of recorded history. The team made their observations using the NRAO 36-foot telescope in October 1974, targeting transitions between 80 and 120 gigahertz. They based their detections on extrapolations of spectra measured at lower frequencies by Coulot and Michelson Effinger. In the end, they present three modestly strong signals arising at the expected frequencies and velocities. Now, in a note added in proofs, the authors share that recent observations of HDO, heavy water, by Barry Turner, permitted them to estimate the proof of the Sagittarius B2 molecular cloud to be approximately 0.001. If you want to read more about ethanol, both in space and in time, you can check out the links and references in our show notes, including a 2010 segment of All Things Considered from NPR.
Taking a look at the chalkboard, in hiring news, there are two postdoc openings at NASA facilities. First up, the Sublime Laboratory at NASA Goddard Space Flight Center is now hiring for a full-time postdoctoral position to conduct research of sublimated interstellar and or planetary ices with submillimeter and infrared spectroscopy. They are seeking individuals with expertise in various fields, including, but not limited to, observational or laboratory astrochemistry, submillimeter spectroscopy, and or infrared spectroscopy. Interested applicants should contact Stephanie Milam with inquiries on the position and notification of interest. Starting dates will be the summer of 2024, but negotiations on start date will be considered. Applications are due March 1st at 6 p.m. Eastern. As well, the Astrophysics and Astrochemistry Laboratory at NASA Ames has an opening for a postdoc working on laboratory studies of astrophysical ices and organic compounds. And this is working with Michael Nuevo and Scott Sanford. Applications for that are also due March 1st at 6 p.m. Eastern. In conference news, registration is now open for the Quantum Grain Workshop Emerging Horizons in the Chemistry of the Universe in Barcelona, June 9th to the 12th, 2024. Registration is free, limited to 80 participants, and closes May 13th. Abstract submission is April 15th. Also, we'll note that abstract submission is now open for the International Symposium on Molecular Spectroscopy, which is held June 17th to the 21st at the University of Illinois. ISMS has a decades-long history of strong astrochemistry programming each year, and one of this year's mini-symposia is organized by Nathan Kidwell and Christina Puzzarini on synergy between experiment and theory. That's not exclusively astrochemistry-focused, but astrochemistry will certainly be a strong component of that symposium. There will also be plenary talks from laboratory astrophysicists, including Ian Sims and Bernadette Broderick. ISMS is known as an extremely collegial and relaxed environment with a strong emphasis on informal discussion and collaboration, as well as being an incredibly welcoming and accessible environment for students, both undergraduate and graduate students, including being the great, great place for them to give their first talks. Registration and housing costs for students are extremely low. Abstract submission closes March 1st. Number three. The promises and challenges of the ALMA Wideband Sensitivity Upgrade will be held June 24th to the 28th at ESO in Garching, Germany. The WSU will make enormous advances in the capabilities of ALMA for broadband spectral line observations and is particularly impactful for astrochemistry. The abstract deadline will be the 1st of March, with registration by the 1st of May. In-person attendance is going to be strongly encouraged, but remote participation will be possible. Finally, at this summer's meeting of the European Astronomical Society, EAS, in Padova, there's going to be a symposium, it looks like July 3rd to the 4th, entitled Once Upon a Time, Our Astrochemical History. The symposium aims to foster discussion and exchange in the following key areas. First, the exploitation of the huge datasets of molecular line observations from radio to infrared wavelengths to characterize the chemical composition and evolution of star-forming regions and sun-like planetary systems under different environmental conditions. And second, state-of-the-art astrochemical models and toolkits, which include advanced techniques to predict the chemical composition of planetary systems to develop a new model of the proto-sun nebula. And that's it for this month's Astrochem Coffee, a service of astrochemistry discussions. Once again, you can find links to all the papers and meetings from today's episode on our website, coffee.astrochem.net. 
If you have ideas for the grab and go, the single origin brew, the double shot, general thoughts or comments, you can always get in touch with us at coffee at astrochem.net. Special thanks today to ChatGPT and booze. Until next time, stay safe and keep your head in the molecular clouds. tell you that today's cup of joe is a smoky mountain roast from shenandoah oh boy